The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely pumped, we will be able to live with people as their brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Beloved Community Podcast, brought to you by KUAF and the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council. The Beloved Community Podcast is designed with community in mind. We seek to highlight individuals and organizations that strive to build Dr. King's beloved community in the Northwest Arkansas region, the state of Arkansas, and beyond. Each month, you'll hear from leaders in our community working to combat poverty, racism, and equality, and promote the ideals of the beloved community where injustice ceases and love prevails. Be inspired to join the movement. Good afternoon, Northwest Arkansas. We are coming to you from the KUAF studios in beautiful downtown Fayetteville, Arkansas, for episode two of the Beloved Community Podcast. It is my pleasure um, to be with you today. I am Chris Seawood, treasurer of the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council. And it is my honor and my privilege to have my friend, my brother, Dr. Ricky Booker, with us today. Um, just a brief introduction of Dr. Booker. Dr. Booker is a DEI thought leader, newspaper columnist, facilitator, trainer, and consultant. He also works at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. He writes about the societal issues we are all facing today using inter- cultural competence. He works diligently to hold space for everyone, even people who may have a different world view. Dr. Booker enjoys helping people understand why representation is important. He works with organizations to explore whether policies, procedures, and processes are equitable to the populations they serve. He also challenges himself and those who he engages with to interrogate the ways in which we are inclusive of all people, especially for those populations who have been marginalized historically. He has worked in higher education for the past 17 years. And you can find more information about Dr. Booker and his work at booknowledge.org. Again, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Ricky Booker and also note that the Opinions he expresses today are his own and not necessarily reflective of those of the University of Arkansas. Dr. Booker, how you doing, my brother? I'm doing good, Chris. Man, it's good to be with you, man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Good to see you. Now, do I have to stay official and call you Dr. Booker? Oh, no, or can just call, I call me you? Ricky. You just call me Ricky. Or can I call you Ricky <laughs> Lee? No, I'm just. Oh yeah, you can call me that too. <laughs> it is great to have you. Um, it's uh. I want to stay as formal as I can and stick to the script, but we have these conversations so often um, about what we're going to talk about, the state of uh, equity and uh, DEI in the state of Arkansas and in the region specifically today. Um, But just first and foremost, um, really about your writing, you become just such a prolific author and writer over the last few years of which I just take just extreme pleasure 
in reading um, your articles in the Democrat Gazette and even in your blog. So just talk to the audience. Tell us about what was the impetus behind um, your writing? What really struck the chord and, uh, there and caused you to start writing so much? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I think it, for me it goes back to my childhood. I've always been very artistic. Um, yeah. I grew up drawing. I have uh, my mom has my art book at home, and I got characters from Bart Simpson and Bugs Bunny and all these different characters that I used to watch on TV. And I would just, if I could see it, I could draw it. And so having that artistic mindset um, really just kind of has, has done well for me in a number of different capacities, whether it be sports or whether it be my, my career or, my, or even in my personal life. And so I think this writing has, is just another phase of my artistic uh, worldview and viewpoint about different things. And so it really started for me um, in 2013 um, after Trayvon Martin was murdered. And I will tell you, 2011, I finished my doctorate and I was like, I'm not writing anymore because mm. after spending, you know, <laughs> a long time working on a dissertation and writing papers for a number of years, I was just tired. And so I took a, a couple years break. But in 2013, I really started um, keeping a journal. Mm. And so I would just write and put my thoughts down on paper. And again, I wasn't writing for a newspaper or or no one else actually got to see my writings. But I started writing just about the things that uh, people were experiencing in the world and how I felt about it. And so after George Floyd was murdered in 2020, uh, which was seven years after Trayvon Martin, I just uh, was inspired by um uh, a lady by the name of Nikita. And so Nikita actually is the founder of Arkansas Got Soul. Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so Nikita Reed. Nikita Reed. Yeah. yeah. Nikita, Nikita, man, she was really inspirational for me. And so she was pushing me to start writing um, where people could actually hear my voice. And so um, my first article that I wrote uh, is titled Am I Next? And I actually wrote it in Arkansas Soul. And so I'm very thankful mm-hmm. uh, for Nikita. I want to give a shout out for him. The, the website is A-R-G-O-T-S-O-U-L, ArkansasGotSoul.com. And so definitely go check out um, their website. But, yeah, I wrote my first piece there. Um, and then um, she connected me with the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And I've been writing for them now almost three years. And so I think that's how it kind of got started. And again, it's just another piece of, I guess, just my artistic worldview and um, something that I've always been utilizing in a number of different ways throughout my life. Hmm. So how cathartic would you say writing is for you, Um, particularly in terms of catharsis for um, as a black man? Um, particularly in relation to some of the tragedies we see that we have encountered as it relates to, um, you mentioned Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, um, those type of incidences that have occurred over the last few years. How is your writing um, helpful in those uh, ways? Um. So I think for me it's helpful. I guess I would say on an individual standpoint, just for me personally, mm-hmm. it's good to get it out. Mm. It's good mm-hmm. to get my opinions and my thoughts out. And I will say I write a number of different pieces every month, and some of those pieces will never see the light of day mm. because I'm just getting stuff out. Yeah. And so for those pieces that I do decide to to publish, I always have a little bit of help. I have um, 
uh, editor. So I've been writing in almost three years, and I've had two different editors. I started with uh, a lady by the name of Sarah Bishop, mm-hmm. who is an amazing uh, communication consultant. And so I uh, worked with her for about a year and a half. And then now I'm working with uh, Veronica Mobley, who also is an amazing communicator. And, and what I do is I'll write a piece and then I'll send it to them um, and then they'll review it and then give, uh, give me feedback. Mm-hmm. And I do that because I definitely want to you know, have my voice heard and uh, speak truth. But I also want to get a, a second opinion on how to maybe change it up or mix it up or even bring in different things. And so I will tell you one thing that Sarah Bishop taught me was how to actually use narrative mm. in writing, which mm-hmm. is so important. So what I do every time I write a piece, I really try to go find a story um, about a person in our society or in our world that maybe has experienced that. Mm-hmm. Because what I've learned uh, from working with Sarah is that narratives is a way to uh, meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. When you can see a story of a person that you may not know, um, but may be similar to you, then you can really start to lean in versus just my own opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, because my column isn't uh, it's an op-ed, it's an opinion column, but I really try to bring in um, data, I bring in narratives, and I try to um, bring in facts about what the issue is. And then I challenge people to um, think outside the box, or mm-hmm. should I, I should maybe say expand their box. Yeah. So instead yeah. of thinking, I say expand your box because our world is changing, and whether we want it to or not, um, we have to somehow figure out how to adapt to the change. Yeah, that's good. And so how has that opened, uh, um, how has that helped you, helped you open um, up new conversations or... Has it helped you open up new conversations, you know, and particularly writing for a large publication like the Democrat Gazette? You know, I'm sure you, you know, everybody's not going to agree with your op-ed <laughs> when they see it. So when that happens, how, how, what's been your interactions with those detractors as they may be, um, um, how do those conversations go or has that opened up a new world that allow you to challenge people's perspectives or even have your own perspectives challenged? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have had my uh, perspective challenge and I've definitely been able to connect with folks who agree with me and who disagree with me. Mm -hmm. Um, Every month, whenever my article publishes, I always get emails, whether good or detractors, as you said, Mm -hmm. and uh, always respond. Yeah. always engage people because I feel like, how can I put it? I know that some people will never change, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But the way that I approach things, I feel like um, my job is to meet people where they are. And if someone reaches out to me um, in a respectful manner, mm-hmm. I'll say that, mm-hmm. um, then I'll respond and I'll engage with them because I, what I've learned is I think about, I continually think about myself. And I just think about where I was five or 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and my mindset and my perceptions about a number of different things. Mm -hmm. And I have now shifted my views on those things. And it's not because someone forced me to change my mind. It's not because I was indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. It was because I was given new information that I did not have. Mm -hmm. And it was because I took that information and I looked into it a little bit deeper. And I'm like, wow. No one has ever shared this with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, that has been so helpful to me. So I try to lend that same, uh, I guess, courtesy to other people as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's so important because, again, our world is changing. And people, I feel like people, um, some people are 
upset and they're angry because they feel like they're being left behind. Mm. Uh, and I do. I got friends who are like, you know what? I don't really care about people being left behind. Mm. This is the change right now, and they need to get on board. Mm. Uh, and I respect that. But for me, I hear that and I say, okay, that's great. That's the road you want to take. Well, the road I want to take for those who do want to engage and who are trying to understand, who don't get it because – you know, for their entire life, they've always uh, looked at things a certain way. And now it's like, oh, well, here's how the world is operating now. Um, somebody needs to, in my opinion, be able to step in the gap and try to help them get information that they did not have before. Hmm. I think that's great. I think that's great. And and as an admirer, I know of, of Dr. the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, as you are, uh, um, and a quote I'm always reminded of is that, you know, we really – as much as we can, it's it's is working to make um, a so-called enemy a friend um, where possible. I mean, um, at the end of the day, um, so yeah, that's that's a great great perspective. So, just changing speech just a little bit um, to DEI um, <laughs> as a seasoned DEI professional, Ricky. Um, so, what are your perspectives on the successes? and challenges of DEI and professional workspaces? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I'll start out by just saying, just giving a little information about how DEI, I guess, started and how it has transformed. Because most people don't even understand. They just feel like it's something that just popped up. And mm -hmm. now we're trying to indoctrinate folks into uh, understanding a new worldview. Mm -hmm. uh, but DEI positions uh, came out of the civil rights movement. Uh, and many other things, too. I mean, we could we could have 15 podcasts about so many benefits that all of us in this country benefit from from the civil rights movement. But specific to DEI, it came out of the civil rights movement. Um, it started as diversity, just getting people who looked differently, specifically black folks, specifically mm -hmm. brown folks, specifically women into the workforce. Um, and then eventually it moved into diversity and inclusion. And now it is diversity, equity, inclusion, access, belonging, and so many other things, because mm -hmm. it's really leaning into um, systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's in a, who has been marginalized or minoritized in our society has a place in DEI. And the reality is that is all of us. Mm. Even if we are not yet um, clear on what the minoritized identity that we hold may be, mm -hmm. at some point, I'm just going to say just a very simple one. At some point, all of us are probably going to end up with a disability, whether mm -hmm. it's now or whether it's as we get older. Mm -hmm. um, and so as we know, when we look at people who have disabilities, the spaces in which we all go to, whether it's work, whether it's a grocery store, are not designed specifically for people with disabilities. Mm. That's why we have the American Disabilities Act that said, okay, now we're going to make sure that we put elevators in buildings. Yeah. There's ADA requirements that says, oh, well, you have to have your door this size so that someone, if they're in a wheelchair or whatever the case may be, they'll be able to access that building to be able to you know, get to the resources that you're trying to provide. And so... Um, in the corporate world, DEI really started with global diversity officers um, uh, the past, I would say, 10 or 15 years. And then before that, it was the vice president for community affairs in the 70s and 80s. Again, came out, coming out of the civil rights movement. And again, it has expanded to uh, really try to, I guess, provide more inclusion for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes I hear people who, um, who, uh, who want to just lean in when they hear DEI, they think, people of color, they think sexual orientation, they think gender identity. Mm -hmm. 
Now, while those things are a part of that, that's not they're not exclusive. Mm-hmm. They're all of us fall within within DEI. And the reality is, you know, DEI is a, in my opinion, a simple and nice way to talk about things that have happened in our country to just give people awareness. Mm. That's pretty much it. We're mm-hmm. not trying to tell you you have to do this. We're giving you awareness so that you will be prepared. I kind of look at it like giving people the scaffolding they need to navigate our society. Mm-hmm. Because imagine if you are, if you just imagine if, you know, we have legislatures one day that will say, we're going to ban books and there's certain books that you can't read when you're in K through 12. Imagine if that happened. Imagine. <laughs> so if that were to happen, yes, our children, our kids spend a significant amount of time at school. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also something called the real world as well. Mm -hmm. They're going to go to the Boys and Girls Club. They're going to go to Walmart. They're going to go to different venues where they interact with people. And they're still going to have to navigate the issues in our society. So the question I always ask is, how are we preparing our children to navigate a world that is continually changing? And so, um, again, to have things that are uh, like book bans that are happening, I think, is, is a travesty. But travesty. But to get to your, your question about the challenges and the successes, I think that some of the challenges is um, that DEI is not liberation work. Mm. Uh, I talked to uh, some of my friends who are activists and who are really involved in social justice. Now, while there are some social justice tenants in DEI, um, it's not social justice exclusively. It's not liberation work. Again, it's a simple way, simple and nice way to explain to people about the realities in our country. And now I say some of the successes that I've seen in DEI is just being able to provide awareness. Mm. I mean, I literally this is where I would say I uh, even though I do agree with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi on a number of things. This is one of the things where I disagree with him, because one of the things he says is that uh, he calls it um uh, I think it's uh, uh, social or personal suasion is what he calls it. Mm-hmm. And he says that it is almost impossible to uh, give people information and they change. Well, I disagree with that because I've provided people with information over the years in trainings. And over time, they made their own decision them- themselves mm-hmm. to be like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Right. OK, now I'm going to take a different action. Again, I'm not involved in that. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying, hey, here's something you probably didn't know about the black community. Mm -hmm. Here's why we celebrate Black History Month. Mm -hmm. Here's why it even exists. And so when you give people that information, then if they go interrogate it, then they can, you know, figure out whether or not they support it or whether or not the the stance that they've always had is something that they want to continue to have. And I'm fine with that. Mm. And so what would be your take with those, again, using the word detractors that would try to lump um, DEI facilitators or practitioners into, um, and forgive me for using it, but it seems like it's just the popular word now, CRT. So everything gets lumped into this critical race theory um, 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 lumping, for lack of a better term, that it's, it's CRT working. I mean, I read an article the other day where um, um, that it was 
was literally being attributed to uh, CRT, critical race theory teaching. Um, and I'm sure you would know that 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 is a graduate level teaching and <laughs> we can go on and on again, um, multiple podcasts on that. But what would you say to those folks that would that would lump what you do and others um, on a day to day basis as 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 CRT or critical race theory? Um, you're you're trying to force um, um, a a particular type of suasion down, um, down people's throats. Okay. Well, I think a very simple response I would say is, um, thank you. And (laughs) when I say that, of course I'm, I'm being, uh, sarcastic, but I say thank you in the sense that I'm not saying thank you because of, because I understand the harm and the hurt Mm -hmm. that is continually done. And I also understand that, that there will be casualties when it comes to this. And I mean, like, people who are experiencing trauma, hurt, pain, I'm not saying that that's okay. Um, what I am saying, though, is I feel like when you look at humanity in general, mm-hmm. most of us don't really care or really lean into issues until they come knocking at our door. Mm. And so it, it's any of you just looked throughout history, oftentimes when there has been a significant movement in our society it's because other people started to feel it as well. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just one community. And so when I see what's going on where people are lumping things into CRT, and I'm sure, I mean, we're, we're three years into this, this CRT thing, which uh, it all started with Christopher Rufo, who is a conservative activist, who made it clear, you know, we're going to you know, lump anything and everything that we don't agree with, and we're just going to call it critical race theory, mm-hmm. and it'll get people riled up it'll get people frustrated mad and this is how we can start to change the landscape of um, what he was saying the republican party Mm -hmm. conservatism and so um when i look at that and i look at how it originated i mean it's very clear that there's absolutely no grounds to be attacking crt has been around for 40 years Mm -hmm. dei has been around for again it came out of the civil rights movement 40 50 years dei has been around all of a sudden, it's a bad thing. And the thing I think we all have to interrogate, what are people really saying when they tell you, oh, this is too woke or this is critical race theory or this is indoctrination? What are they really saying? Mm. And again, if we just look at our history and we look at why do we even have a civil rights movement? Why do we even have affirmative action? Mm. Why do you know, most corporations have diversity officers. Why do most college campuses have a multicultural center, a diversity office? So you really have to interrogate this. And so we've been having these things for, you know, multiple decades and all of a sudden it's bad. Yeah. And if that's the case, what I would say is even the people who are fighting against critical race theory, who have a, went to a, uh, a liberal academic institution and got their degree or have worked for a corporation that had a diversity, equity, inclusion office within that organization, what does that mean? Because mm-hmm. that means that if if that if CRT is so bad and DEI is so bad, you were also a participant or a beneficiary of attending mm-hmm. an institution, and how did that impact you? Mm-hmm. That's what I would ask those people who are so against it, who attended these institutions where these officers were there and more than likely they probably walked by them a hundred times and never said a word. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. 
So how do you think that impacts those those folks that would be, I would say, on the other side? Um, and sorry for saying up at this adversarial um, dynamic, but or dichotomy, but just for the sake of argument, for those that are on that side that would set up these arguments that would make um, DEI work, um, um, that would try to lump everything and call it CRT, you name it. How do you think, or do you think they are really thinking about um, the true impact that it would have or it is having on race relations, particularly in the state of Arkansas or even locally? I know that they, I mean, I, we hear the argument all the time that they say that the teaching of um, diversity um, or CRT, as they define it, is having negative impacted from their perspective on race relations. But from your perspective, um, what do you think is the real impact on quote unquote race relations um, in the state of Arkansas or abroad um, when they are um, having these type of reactions? Well, you know, I'll, I'll definitely give you my individual opinion, but I would say for folks who are legislatures or have power or uh, are running an organization and you have the power to make a decision whether or not you're going to fund these positions or whether or not you're going to keep them going. I would say if you think that having a conversation about race relations is divisive and that it's hurting our country, I would challenge you to go and talk to communities of color Mm -hmm. or any minoritized community, whether it be the LGBTQIA plus community, mm -hmm. the community of those who have disabilities, uh, black communities, yes. uh, Latinx communities, go talk to these communities and see what they have to say. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is because, again, I'm from southeast Arkansas, a little small rural town. Warren, Arkansas is my hometown. Um, I grew up there. It's mostly black and white Christian community uh, when I was growing up. Um, and I think about the things that a lot of my elders used to tell me about. Uh, our town is no different than most small towns in the specifically in the South. Uh, we have a railroad track that runs through our town. And for years, black people lived on one side and white people lived on the other same, side. Same here. Mm -hmm. And I, my godmother, who we just call her Mama Jim, she's 94 years old and I still talk to her today. And uh, I, I've talked to her many times and I asked her, you know, what was it like growing up during that time? And one thing she said, she's like, well, you know, baby, it was tough. But uh, she said we stayed on our side of town and they stayed on their side of town. Mm -hmm. I asked her about the resources in the school. She was like, oh, no, their school was much better than ours mm -hmm. because my godmother actually used to clean one of the schools that was there, the white school on the other side of town. And so she was like way more resources. It looked much differently. The playground was kept up and, and it just had many more resources. So I say all that to say as an anecdotal example to say that if you think that talking about race relations is a problem and, and it's being divisive in this country, then I would ask what about the last 400 years 
these communities of color and what they've been going through and how they have been have we have been having these conversations for centuries mm-hmm. about what is going on, how it is impacting us. And what we do is we're not having a what some people will call a pity party or we're not considering ourselves a victim. Again, talking to my godmother, she was like, baby, I've never looked at myself as a victim. Mm-hmm. She's like, it's just always been a lot of barriers in front of us. Mm-hmm. And once we get over one barrier, we got another barrier. We got to climb over that. And you know what we did? We just kept on moving. Yeah. We just kept on moving. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think the recent national conversations about race and racism, um, but not only, I mean, I, we can broaden it um, from race and racism to, um, I mean, our LGBTQIA um, conversations, uh, reproductive right conversations, et cetera. How do you think those conversations nationally now are, how, how do you think they have or are impacting um conversations here in the state you know i think that they're significantly impacting our conversations and i say that because i know the the flashpoint right now i think was um definitely george floyd but Mm -hmm. i mean i think the situation that happened with trayvon martin uh few years ago i think that really got things started and dr reverend william barber who is the co-chair of the poor people's campaign and Mm -hmm. the chair of the repairs from the breach he talks about this a lot in his book the Mm -hmm. third reconstruction Mm -hmm. and he calls this time in our country the third reconstruction Mm -hmm. of course the first reconstruction was right after the civil war when Mm -hmm. you know uh, black people had significant had gained significant political power Mm -hmm. and upward mobility um you know we had the first black men that served in u.s congress Mm -hmm. i mean you had people who served in state houses state legislatures and then we had a rollback. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 I mean, for those who don't know, just go look up First Reconstruction and you can find that information. But then the second Reconstruction he calls the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. you know, with Dr. King mm-hmm. and uh, Raynard, uh, Baynard Rustin and mm-hmm. Ella Baker and so many, John Lewis, so many other folks who fought for, for the rights again that we all, uh, you know, benefit from today. And then here we are now after the mass incarceration of black and brown communities, um, continual, uh, I guess I would say, um, the criminal justice system being weaponized Mm -hmm. against black and brown communities, and even poor communities, I would add as well. And so he calls this the third reconstruction. He said, he says that we're right where we're supposed to be, Hmm. right where we're supposed to be. And so I actually think that people who actually care about truth and humanity are actually learning about things that they didn't know. I mean, I continually get questions from people like, oh, what is DEI? What is CRT? What is woke? And and people oftentimes will say that there are only uh, uh, two genders. I've mm-hmm. heard that a lot. People say that to me, mm-hmm. um, male and female. And now people are learning that uh, every one in 2,000 people that are born are born as intersex. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people did not know that. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, that um, is something I, I'm just now learning, mm-hmm. you know. And so then also I think that people are learning about transgender people and they are seeing in real time how trans people are being attacked via legislation, which is starting to look quite a bit how black folks were intentionally targeted via legislation during the colonial period. And this is largely because of the intersections of racism, transphobia, I would say sexism, biphobia, and homophobia. And um, oftentimes when I talk about this, I have sometimes my black brothers and sisters who would kind of jump down my throat and be like, wait a minute, hold on. How you going to compare? You can't conflate. 
Yeah, you can't conflate LGBTQIA plus people to what we went through. And what I try to get people to understand is that while you may not look at um, that community of people as the same, the people who are targeting that community look at them Mm -hmm. just like they may look at the black community Mm -hmm. and how they're trying to say, oh, we can't teach this or you can't teach that. So I try to get people to understand it. And I also try to get people to understand is, well, you do know that there are black transgender people, right? Mm-hmm. You do understand that. And so oftentimes people say, well, you know, we're always for our people. And so I'm like, okay, was that in- does that include trans people? Mm-hmm. Are they our people as right, well? Right. And so I really try to challenge people in those ways. And I do that at the same time while I'm still learning as well. Right. And because, again, I again I think about myself five or ten years ago. Again, as I told you, I was raised in a small town, Christian, uh, black and white community. And for a long time, myself, I'm not afraid to say that I was pretty homophobic. Mm-hmm. I was. That was just a part of who I was. And I'll explain why. You know, I was raised by a single parent mother. I had three sisters. And I oftentimes had people who were my friends or even people who are a little older. And they would tell me, like, man, you're being raised in a house with all these women. You know, you, you got to be careful, man. You may end up to be gay. You mm. may turn out to be gay. Mm. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, I got to do everything I can to fight against right. that. Yeah. And so me fighting against that looked like I don't want to be around people like that. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And so, again, now, you know, as I'm learning more, uh, and again, I do have I, people always say, well, you know, I have black friends. You know, I say, well, I have friends who are part of the LGBTQIA plus community and yet still, too. I was very homophobic mm-hmm. just because I have friends or people I associate with doesn't mean that I've done the internal work to check myself, to learn about what people experience. And then I also say, you think about, I, I just, I get sometimes really surprised as if people seem like, you know, people from the LGBTQIA plus community just all of a sudden popped up on the scene yeah. as if they haven't always been here, yeah. you know, fighting the struggles that they've had to go through. You think, I think about Barbara Jordan, yeah. the first black woman from the South to be in the House of Representatives and the power she had during the Nixon administration when she actually held him accountable yeah. during the Watergate. I think about her. She was not an openly gay black woman or lesbian, but what she was at her funeral her partner of 20-plus years gave the eulogy, mm-hmm. and many people didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I think about James Baldwin, who was an openly gay mm-hmm. black man, mm-hmm. who was a huge part of pushing forward the civil rights movement. And so there's people who've played roles and to completely act as if we're going to ignore the significant contributions that they've made um, kind of gets me yeah. frustrated and fired up. And for me, I'm going to always be an ally, and I'm going to always try to stand up uh, for, for all humanity. Oh man, that's awesome. I appreciate your uh, your transparency. So, what do you think about the um, so the re- recent political developments in Arkansas and how they impacted conversations about uh, race and racism? You know, I would say um, I w- I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. I mean, we got to remember, we're, you know, I, I love my state. I'm in Arkansas. You know, sometimes people say, well, hey, you know, you know, I had one person, re- he read one of my articles and he emailed me. He was like, well, you know, if you don't like the state of Arkansas, maybe you should leave the state. <laughs> and so, and to be honest with you, you, I know you're laughing. It actually made me laugh when I, I read it. leave. You don't like it, leave. <laughs> <laughs> it made me laugh because, you know, for me, you know, uh, and I responded. 
But for me, I look at it as if, you know, I, I know a little bit about my family history on my mom's side. I'm the ninth generation in my family um, to be here. Uh, my fifth great grandfather, Anthony Lewis, was brought here as mm. an enslaved person from Nigeria. Mm. And so we do have the lineage of everyone that came behind him and how uh, he was brought to North Carolina. And eventually my third great grandfather, uh, General William Henry Harrison, fought in the Civil War, fought for mm. his freedom, attained his freedom. And he and his wife actually came down to the south with the uh, the Union troops and actually settled in South Arkansas uh-huh. and actually started a school, the Harrison uh, School for uh, Black and, and, and um, Free uh, Slaves. They started that school in South Arkansas. And they had it for about 50 years. They ran that school. That's amazing. You wow. know, and so and I just learned that about 10 years ago mm-hmm. um, because a lot of my uh, people in my family have uh, our, our history books. Yeah. And so now they've been sharing that with us. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. And so when people say things like, you know, well, maybe you should just leave. I'm like, I'm not going anywhere, number one. I'm, mm. I'm the ninth generation. My right, daughter's the right. tenth generation. And uh, we have put just as much blood, sweat, and tears into this country You've as anyone as else. as much right to be here, <laughs> probably more <laughs> than any other immigrant uh, family uh, does here in the state. Yes. Yes. So I'm not surprised when it comes to um, what's happening now, I mean, again, we, you know, you can't, again, you can't talk about, in my opinion, I feel like we can't have a informed conversations about the realities today if we completely ignore the history that got us to this point. Mm-hmm. Everything else that we do in society, we don't ignore that. For example, many of us, like I know you and I, we drove on the road to get here. Mm-hmm. I didn't create the road. Mm-hmm. I don't think you created concrete, no. but we still benefited for whoever that was many, many years ago who created that. Yeah. You know, the building that we're in now, I'm not an architect. I didn't create this building. There are so many people that created all the things that we're using in our society, and we don't ignore that. But why is it when we start talking about race, when we talk about gender or sexual orientation, things that may make us uncomfortable, that we want to completely ignore those histories? That just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Mm, great, great point. Great point. So where do you see the conversation going now uh, around race uh, and racism evolving um, in the coming years, particularly um, here in the state of Arkansas or maybe even more locally here in the region, northwest Arkansas in and of itself? Um, I think it's going to continue to evolve because, as I said earlier, I think oftentimes people don't really lean into issues until they come, until those issues come knocking mm-hmm. at their door or they're just made aware of something going on. It's like, oh, well, let me research it for myself. And I say that because I think that, um, you know, from people that I've talked to, most of the folks I've talked to are either uh, strongly progressive or strongly conservative or there's some people in the middle. Um, And it seems like to me, those folks that are in the middle, depending on what issue you're talking about, are more open to really learning and understanding, even though there have been some folks who are uh, very staunchly conservative that I've seen shift their opinions like, wow, I didn't know that. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow, I didn't know that. And and to me, it all comes back to caring for all humanity. Mm. And I don't say that lightly. You know, when I say that, I really mean that if we truly care about all humanity, how is it that we can try to attack people? And I'll lean into Reverend William Barber again. One of the things he talks about again when he he talks about in his book, The Third Reconstruction, which I thought was just very powerful for me. He said, 
that when it comes to folks in the LGBTQIA plus community, the reason why he really leans in and stands with people as an ally is because he says that it didn't matter whether or not his faith tradition, which he is a Christian just like I am, mm-hmm. it didn't matter whether his faith tradition says that marriage between a male and a female, one man and one woman, because all of our faith traditions says that discrimination is never just mm. and legalized, you know, codif- codification of hate is never righteous. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about that, I'm like, that is so true. Why would I try to legally hurt someone even if I disagree or if I agree? Why would I do that? And so for me, I really lean into that. And I think that things are going to continue to evolve because it's right at the forefront. Um, I, again, I do hate that with all the fear mongering, there are going to be a lot of people that are hurt in the process. Mm. That's the thing that yeah. I, I hurt them. That hurts me the most. And yeah. I, I think about um, our former governor Asa Hutchinson um, when the um, the anti-trans bill came through his his desk, and he took the time. He says this. You can go look it up. He says he took the time to uh, read the bill. Then he went and talked to parents. Mm of trans people mm-hmm. in our state. Mm-hmm. And he decided to veto the bill mm-hmm. because he literally talked to parents, to parents. And, and, and kids within that community yeah. and he heard them. Now, of course, it ended up being you know overridden by the legislature because there's a super majority. Um, but I thought that was very interesting. Someone who is a very conservative, mm-hmm. he shifted his opinion mm-hmm. because he had conversation mm-hmm. with folks in that community. And to me, that's a prime example, because I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't think that that would be something that, you know, Governor Hutchinson would do. But that surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will look at that and they'll say, oh, well, you know, whatever, that's no big deal. But for me, I really look at that and I think about it and I process it. I'm thinking about how many more other folks are there that have not yet gotten certain information or have not connected with someone in some way that can really open their mind to change. And one other thing I want to say when you talk about how, how will this uh, evolve specifically in Arkansas and across our nation, I want to lean into the word, two words of two different people. I want to, Billy Porter, uh, many, of y'all, <laughs> many of y'all, if you don't know Billy Porter, you can, you can Google Billy Porter. But one of the things that Billy Porter said on, on The View recently, he said that you know, many people are afraid of change and are talking about, oh, things are changing right now and I don't know what to do. Um, and they're trying to legislate so the change doesn't happen. But one of the things he said is the change is already here. Mm. It's already here. Yeah. And I would agree with that. And um, so Billy Porter is someone who I would consider to be very progressive. But then I also want to lean into someone who is conservative, who is uh, Jordan Peterson. Mm. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson stated is that he said that he sees what's going on down in Florida with Ron DeSantis and Christopher Rufo, who mm-hmm. all this started, critical race theory started with Christopher Rufo. But he said he sees what's going on and, and they're trying to uh, ban critical race theory. And he said the problem with that is that you cannot clearly define it. So how do you control something that you can't define? He said once you get to the point where the government has to step in and regulate what education systems are doing, you're already in deep trouble. Mm. He says, I don't see how it can be done. People, you know, when you're censoring people's language, that's an issue. And so he says, how do you control something that you can't define? He says that the answer is, is that you battle it out on the battleground of ideas. Yeah. Which is what we used to do for a long time. It's like, oh, well, we're going to talk about it. Let's debate about it. And then we'll let the people decide what they think. But he's saying now we're starting to legislate what people can and can't do. And as a conservative, he said, 
I see that as a big problem. And he feels that you actually can't even do that. Yeah. And it's dangerous ground, Mm -hmm. very dangerous ground where you start to legislate people's thinking, as you said. Um, It's very, very dangerous. Well, I think this is a good place to end. Dr. Booker, um, the interview, as always, is just great, great conversation. We could talk for hours, you and I. But before we go, um, Ricky, we always like to play just a quick little game. It's called Fast Five. If you've got uh, just another couple minutes, um, just want to ask you a few questions. Um, it's fun. Just okay, absolutely. Hang with me. Okay. So just want to see what you pick. I'm going to ask you five questions, but you got to be honest. Okay. So if, if you lie, there's going to be a buzzer over here. Going, no, I'm just joking. There won't be a buzzer. <laughs> so if you had to pick between golfing or fishing. Oh, golfing all day long. Oh, man. I thought you we used what, to be a fisherman. Well, you know, well, see, I grew up fishing. You know, growing up in Southeast Arkansas, a lot of people don't know. I, I, I tell people this sometimes. I grew up fishing. I grew up riding four-wheelers. I grew up hunting deer and squirrel. Like, I grew up doing a lot of things that when people see me, they wouldn't assume that that's what I did. But, yeah, I'm, I'm a country boy. But, no, I, I love golfing because I'm still outside, but I love golfing. I knew you picked golfing. <laughs> He's got his golfing outfit on right now, too. So, <laughs> so, so I get it. Um, reading or writing? Writing. Well, of course, you're a writer. <laughs> okay. Red and white or green and white? Green and white. Of course he would. He's a graduate of the University of Arkansas. Absolutely. At Go Bo Weevils. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another color question. Black and gold or purple and gold? Purple and gold. That's, you know that's the color of royalty. You know that, right? <laughs> He is also a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, uh, for those of you that don't know. (laughs) And finally, uh, Frederick Douglass or W.E.B. Du Bois? Oh, man. That is a... I knew I was going to get you on that one. Oh, man. You know, that's a tough one. See, I know I have to pick one. And uh, this is not an indictment on the person I don't pick. I'm just going to go ahead and get that disclaimer. <laughs> but I'm going to pick Frederick Douglass. And the reason why I'm going to say Frederick Douglass is because I recently wrote a piece where I quoted him. So I wrote a piece um, about wokeness mm-hmm. to explain to everybody, like, what is wokeness and how to get started. And the first record that I could find of anyone using the word woke was Frederick Douglass in 1848 when he was calling on his white allies to wake up. Mm-hmm. And stand hard and fast against, you know, white supremacy and the freedom of black folks. And so I, I had to go with Frederick Douglass because that's so fresh on my mind where he's like, look, he, he used woke before anybody I know, 1848. Yeah. So all of a sudden today being woke, being aware of systemic injustices is a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That would be my choice, too, even <laughs> though I love love love. Uh, Du Bois. I, I would pick Frederick <laughs> Douglass too. So great, great choice. Well, folks, thank you for your uh, time today. This again has been an absolute pleasure as usual. Uh, if you want to know more about us at the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, um, you can find us on our website at uh, www.nwamlk.org or you can follow us on any of our social media pages. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn or Twitter. 
Um, Dr. Booker, again, if you want to let folks know where they can follow you on your social media pages or website. Absolutely. Yeah. If you all want to just go to my blog, which is bookknowledge.org. And so that's just the word book and then the word knowledge. So there are two K's, bookknowledge.org. And I have my information on there. I also have uh, all the different columns that I write for the Gazette, as well as different book reviews that I do. So I read books and I like to uh, do about a four or five minute book review uh, to really engage people to maybe want to read the book. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you all. And we'll see you in the beloved community. Bye bye.